and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. I'm reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, simply to set the stage for today's Bible teaching. Beginning at verse 1, I read as follows. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Such is the evaluation of the ancient church of Ephesus. Today, we will see the common reasons why a Christian may leave his or her first loving of Christ we will see that the church of Ephesus had left their first love for Jesus. They had become cold-hearted. Sick churches are populated with cold-hearted Christians. And now with his message for today is Pastor Robert Elliott. Verse 4 again. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Now, that short phrase, you have left your first love, shows me at least three things. Are you ready if you're taking notes? The first thing I draw from you have left your first love is that that was intentional. It was not accidental. They had some measure intentionally walked away from Jesus as their priority. It was, was not accidental. It was a choice. The second thing it shows me, that they had wrong priorities. They may not have forsaken their second love, their third love, their fourth love, or their fifth love, but the, the God says to John, you tell the church at ancient Ephesus, you've forsaken your first love, Christ. Third, Christ was their sacrificial meter of their needs. He discerned the greatest needs in the church at ancient Ephesus. He discerned it to be a sin problem, and he sacrificed everything he had to sacrifice, his very life on the cross. He was their first love, and to be their first love in the sense of worshiped Savior from sin. He was to be their first love. He is to be our first love. He is our crucified sin bearer, our sin payment, 
our guarantor of bodily resurrection. He is to be our everything as a church gathered, and he is to be your everything alone this week or with your families. He is to be our first love. So going back to these three problems, first, this intentional and not accidental forsaking of Christ, what does that look like? Well, it looks like denying Jesus when we go to work. It looks like not admitting we are affiliated with Jesus when we go to school. It looks like knowing his word but choosing to disobey it in points. It looks like neglecting his word and not using or referring to his word through the week between Sundays. What would number two look like? What would wrong priorities look like? What would it look like if Jesus was no longer our first love, but maybe our seventh love? What would that look like? Well, it would look like fitting him into our busy schedules, maybe. It would look like gathering with his people if it happens to be convenient. It would look like putting something in the offering plate if dot, dot, dot. When we lose Jesus as our first love, it's usually intentional and not accidental. It's usually reflective of bad priorities, and it usually is seeing Jesus for less than he is, our risen, sacrificial, sin-bearing Savior. So what would it look like to reduce Jesus to some other kind of a love beyond a Savior from sin, love for sinners? What would it look like? Well, in the evangelical church today, it looks like singing to Jesus as if he's your boyfriend. In the evangelical church nowadays, it's making Jesus far too commonplace, far too ordinary, far too mundane. So I wonder, how are we doing on these three points? How am I doing on these three points? I mean, how, uh, how are we doing with respect to a spiritual cardiogram? How does that look for our church? Well, Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment was, first answered in Matthew 22, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Is that how we love Jesus as a church? Second point, do our pastors pass as under-shepherds? Well, what did Jesus say to under-shepherds? He said in John 21, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. And Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, Jesus said. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And what about an obedience exam for the risen Christ, our first love? How do we pass that? John 14, 21 and 23, Jesus said this about obedience. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. We can't say that Jesus is our first love if we don't keep his word. 
if we don't obey his commands. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. You know, the curious thing was the ancient church at Ephesus on the outside to a human evaluator looked good. They weren't quitting. They weren't tolerating wicked people. They were enduring. But to the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, with his perception as God, he said they were a sick church because they had left their first love. The issue really is that sick local churches can look good. They can offer a wide variety of ministries. They can possess nice facilities. They can know the truth inside and out. They can send missionaries around the world. But it's possible that Jesus, who looks on the heart, says that church has left me as being their first love. It's paradoxical, really. It would seem that the verses are teaching that sick churches are populated by cold-hearted believers. So we want to keep our hearts warm, warm to Jesus. It's interesting to notice that the risen Christ put his finger on the Ephesians' hearts, not on their heads. Jesus put his finger on their hearts and not on their heads. They failed a spiritual cardiogram and not a spiritual EEG. They were deficient in spiritual fervor, not in spiritual IQ. Christ doesn't want smarter people. He longs for more devoted people to him. Now, verse 5, Jesus says in 4, because you've left your first love, 5 begins with a therefore. Since you've left your first love, therefore, remember from where you have fallen. From where had they fallen? Does Scripture tell us from where they had fallen? I believe it does. I'm going to go through this very fast. The verses are in your outlines for you to look up later. The book of Ephesians tells us where they once were, from where they had fallen. 115, for this reason too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. They'd fallen from that. 2.6, and raised him up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They had been seated in the heavenly places with Christ positionally in their salvation, but they'd fallen in how they lived. 3.19, from where had they fallen? And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. From where had they fallen? 4.1, therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. From where had they fallen? 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, and to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Oh, they had fallen. But there's more. From where had they fallen? 4.15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God. This is 5, 1 and 2. As beloved children, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant offering. Oh, by leaving Jesus as their first love, they had fallen. 5, 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Oh, they had fallen from such heights. 
5, 19 and 20, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. These are the places and the statuses from which they had fallen. 6.13, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. But here's maybe the clincher of all these verses I've read quickly from Ephesians to show us from where they had fallen. This is the clincher, 6.23. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch it. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. They once had an incorruptible love for Jesus, but it had become corrupted. Thanks, Pastor Rob, for your message today. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers. Today we want to deal with an issue that, as we think of the summer is coming along and uh, schools are closing and a lot of our um, kids and teens have idle time, we want to talk about peer pressure. But we also want to talk about how we can make a difference. If you look at our newspapers today and you see um, different headlines, you'll see that we have a lot of negative talk about young people. And some of it is valid and some of it is not. But we do know that we have some great young people that are, are doing tremendous things for the Lord and tremendous things for, for this country. And this morning, we want to talk about three young men that are no stranger to anyone who has ever been in a Sunday school class or who has read the Bible. We don't want to talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And just so we don't have the time this morning to really um, look at the whole passage of Scripture, just so as we know what's going on, King Nebuchadnezzar has come and he, he has said, I'm going to build this idol. And, and when you hear this music, everyone should bow down to this idol. And as we see in this story, as the, as the, the music has been played in, in verses 1 to 7, everyone is bowed down except three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There were people who were very jealous of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And some of the Chaldeans, as it says in verse 8, took this occasion to come forward maliciously to accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as a king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the music, that they would, they would bow down. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men have ignored you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Now, as I think about in today's terms, as we think of the summer beginning, when your friends want to tell you, we need to do this because everyone else is doing it. But we see here, as we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they took a stand and people talked about them. That's what's going to happen to you. The question becomes, who are we willing to serve? Are we willing to serve our friends, get ourselves in trouble just so we'll be accepted by them? Or are we ready to serve God and what God says to take a stand for him? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood that, look, at the end of the day, I really don't care what these people are saying. All I worry about is whether or not we are serving the, the God of this universe, the God that has put us on this earth to, to do his work. And that's what they, they all they understood. 
And as we think of verse 13, it goes on as, as King Nebuchadnezzar hears this and he's like furious. What do you mean Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down? And he says to bring them to him. As we think of that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come before King Nebuchadnezzar. And as we see in the story, it's almost as if King Nebuchadnezzar wants to make sure maybe they were hard of hearing. They didn't hear him. But we see what happens there. He says, you know what? I'm going to play the music again. And as the music plays, I want you to bow down. And verse 16, it's the key to what we want to look at this morning. As we think of verses 16, it says this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of the blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Again, as we see in this passage, as we think of this encounter and we see them talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, they're saying, look, we don't, we don't really care what you say because we want to serve the God of the universe. Now, some people may say, well, didn't God place King Nebuchadnezzar as the authority? And yes, he did. But we need to understand that scripture gives us as if our, if our king or prime minister, whoever it is, if they go against what the Bible says, we can go against them because we serve a God who is greater than any person who we can even imagine in our different uh, walks of life here in this country. And that's why it's very important as verse 17 said, if the God we serve exists, and they're saying God exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of the blazing fire and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. He's saying, look, I know that God can do this. Verse 18 is very key and, and, and three words that we don't put a lot of emphasis on, but this is so key in our story. It will say, but even if he does not rescue us, they're saying, look, there may be a chance that God does not want to rescue us out of this. We are willing to take a stand no matter what, no matter if no one follows us, no matter if no one else goes with us, we're willing to take a stand for God. And that's the question that we need to ask ourselves as teenagers, as young people. Are you willing to take a stand for God? No matter what the price is, whether people, you know, talk about you, whether they don't want to be a friend anymore, whatever it is, are you willing to take a stand for God? Because that's what happens in prayer pressure. When peer pressure comes and attacks you from all different areas, the question becomes, am I going to do what's right? In the eyes of God. Again, like I said, we know the story. We know how God delivered them in the fiery furnace where King Nebuchadnezzar sees, you know, and he, and he makes sure that fire is hot, that he even did it seven times hotter to make sure that, if, you know what, we can make sure these guys burn. And we see the people who are throwing them, they burn up. And we see as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are delivered as the king sees another person. And we see that as they come out, they don't even smell like smoke. And we know um, in our country, we know as the dump has been out of hand the last couple of months, we can smell that smoke all over our country. Imagine that for a second, that here it is, these guys are in the middle of the fire and they don't have no scent of smoke. What a God we serve. What a God that we worship and adore. What a God that we should be willing to give our lives to because he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And this morning, if you're listening, you can experience 
this relationship with a God who is greater than any person. Yes, people will let us down, but we have a God who promises in his word he'll never leave us or forsake us. And we may go through trials and we may go through tribulations in our Christian walk, but we have a God who can all, we can always turn to, a Father that is always there for us. And I would challenge you, as you think of this summer, make sure you set boundaries up. And what are you going to do when people come and they are attacking you? Are you going to take a stand for God? Or are you going to just follow the crowd and be like everybody else? My prayer is that you would take a stand and show and point them to God. Because God's word is true to us and God is there for us, whatever it is we go through. And now, today's ministry spotlight. I'm pleased this morning to have Dr. Marlene Heiler with me in the studio. Good morning, Marlene. Good morning, and good morning, Bahamas. Marlene is a professional counselor, and she is the co-founder of the New Providence Classical School here in Nassau. Marlene, this morning I'd like to visit with you a bit on the topic of children who are hurting. Mm. Children who are hurting. Um, Marlene, I know that you have... Uh, done studies and you have counseled and have a special interest in children who are part of ministry families, uh, missionary children, pastors' children, and other Christian workers' children. Um, are there any unique hurts for those kinds of children that are stand out? Yes. Those problems we just discussed, Yes. if it happens to the ministry child, the problem is magnified. So the ministry child, first of all, even something as simple as friendships, you don't know if a girl or boy is your friend just because you're the pastor's kid. Uh, yes. Or just because you, you know, just because you're the leader's kid. Do they like me for me or they like me because who my parents are? So something as simple as friendships, their identity can come into question because you have to think a child's job, their job description when they become a teenager is to individuate, to separate from you. That's their job. Yes. To become the person God called them to be. So if they're in a ministry home, if they're in the pastor's home, who am I separate from my parents? And so they're going to need permission to be themselves. For instance, God's call in their life may not be for Christian ministry. And that doesn't have to be a rejection of the parents. Yes. So so their, their problems could be magnified. For instance, if a regular boy or, or a girl takes drugs, you know, the family, it's, you know, you, they have their drama. But for the ministry child, that's even more magnified. Yes. Because I'm embarrassing my parents. You know, I'm sorry I did it, but I'm hurting my parents. Or it could be a way to get back at my parents so it, 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 their problems are more convoluted because it's magnified. I understand. I've never been a pastor's kid, but they tell me it's like living in a fishbowl. Yes. It's, they're so they don't have their own private space to, be, to, to deal with their own private problems. <laughs> their problems become the church's problems, becomes the community problems mm -hmm. because it impacts their parents that are Christian leaders. As you're speaking, Marlene, I'm thinking about our first pastorate in Canada. It was in a little town of 5,000. And uh, this man came up to me when I was just new there, and he said, you know, the best and the worst thing of li living in a town of 5,000, Pastor? I said, no. He said, it's the same thing. Everybody knows you. 
true. It's the best thing. Everybody knows you. And it's the, the worst, worst thing, thing that exactly. everybody knows you. And, exactly. and pastors, families, and other Christian leaders, families, are, that's very true. Can I share something more about that? Yes, please. Um, Dr. Sugdeo, one of the missionaries that comes at Cal to Calvary Bible Church, opened my eyes to this even more so. This Church of Satan... I mean, I'd heard this before, but he he confirmed it once I told him this was an interest of mine. He said, well, you need to understand folklore. And I didn't understand what he meant, but the Bahamian word would be voodoo or obia or witchcraft. So, and this he said that in Muslims or Mohammedism, there's a strand of witchcraft. So those people are praying against Christian families mm. and Christian leaders and the Church of Satan is praying for the destruction of Christian leaders and their families. So while we are praying for the pastor, you have people that are fasting months at a time, praying for the destruction of the pastor. Hmm. And I, I mean, I've met Christian workers, who, especially who deal with Islam, whose names are on the internet and the direction to their house for someone to go and kill them. So it's a very complex world of darkness that's fighting against Christian leaders and their family. And the, so the child that's growing up in the ministry home is coming up in the midst of that darkness that's being prayed against them. It's sobering. And it calls me back to the uh, benchmark or the plumb line that we also remember that he that is, uh, is in us is greater, greater than he that is exactly. in the world. But nonetheless, he's a, a roaring lion seeking whom exactly. he may devour. What would you say to the sincere uh, church member who's active in their local church listening today who says, wow, I didn't realize the issues, the hurting issues that are unique to my pastor's children. What would you say to that person who asks, how can I love and support my pastor's children in a good way? Be intentional about it. Pray specifically for your pastor's children. Get to know them. Get to know them. Um, you can write a favorite list. And I don't know if you could find it on the internet, but write it by hand. Your favorite candy, your favorite candy bar, your favorite movie, your favorite music, your favorite songs, and give it to the pastor and uh, or to the child and ask them to fill it out for mm. you. And every now and then you could just give them treats. You, or you can kidnap them. You can go and take them in a good way. Go and take them for, for, for the day or to a movie, come alongside as, long, as much as the, the pastor and his wife and the child would allow you to get close to them. I would be intentional about trying to get close to them. It's, it's a ministry in itself. They need to be loved on. They need to be nurtured. They need to be accepted for who they are. They need to have permission to be themselves. And maybe your home can be a safe place where you invite the pastor's kids or even the pastor and his wife to say, you could come here, put your feet up, let your hair down and be who you want to be. And we'll love you anyway. Sister Marlene, you have done that for our children. Our two children have been mm -hmm. esteemed by you and you've been very kind and thoughtful toward them and just tried to let them know that they're special and appreciated. So I want to publicly thank you for oh, that. Thank you for saying that. Glad. You're welcome. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. 
in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.